<laughs> Howdy, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the... <laughs> Welcome to the Do As I Say, Not As I Did podcast. This is episode number one, and I'm super excited to be here today. That American accent was questionable, but the podcast is good. Well, it will be after we at least get one out. This is a brand new show, so let's give a little context. This is a bit of a spin on a conventional startup advice show, where each week I'm going to bring on guests to help answer your questions about what it's really like to build a business. My guests will be founders, investors, product experts, technology experts, futurists, sales gurus, just about anyone who is really smart and can help us out how to actually help us work out how to actually build a business. So every week we're going to answer questions submitted by the audience about what is going on in their lives and in their businesses at that time. So if you have any questions or you're trying to put out fires, and if you're in a startup, you are, so send us an email and we're going to workshop it uh, with the best people we can. So if you've got that, send an email through to podcast at joeldutrapani.com. Now that name, that's my name and it's a hard name to spell. So I'm just going to put that email in the show notes and you can click on that to send me an email instead of me trying to teach you how to spell it right now. I'm your host, Joel Dutrapani, and I'm the co-founder and co-CEO of Vigo, which is an edtech scale-up growing out of Australia through the UK and is now focused on the US. On top of that, I'm an advisor and coach in the product space, helping startups and businesses work out how to actually run great product teams and build great products. I may sound Australian, but I promise you I am in the US right now with my cowboy boots on. Uh, today, we have a double billing, twice the guests, twice the advice. I'm excited to be joined by Kyle Brastrom and Greg Serafian. Uh, these guys are the co-founders and founding designer of DiveChat. This is a really cool spin on an events platform that's actually built on top of chat. I think DiveChat as a product is really awesome, but more than anything, I'm obsessed with their design and UX because it's absolutely just out of this world. I've had arguments in the past with others because I actually didn't believe they built this in-house, but I was wrong. <laughs> uh, they've done everything themselves. And outside of DiveChat, uh, Carla's had a lot of success also hosting events and knows how to throw a damn good party. And he even started LA Tech Week. So Carl and Greg, uh, you guys are both experts at building really beautiful products. You deeply understand challenges in the startup consumer world. So thank you guys. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having us, Joel. I'm so excited. I feel blessed to have gotten to meet you this past year in Austin, getting to spend a lot of time in person together, which is what it's all about. And uh, always down to share any knowledge that, that we can with uh, anyone and everyone. Yeah, again, appreciate it, Joel. Appreciate the kind of words about the design. Happy to jump in. And like Kyle said, it's been great meeting you. And you're also a great event thrower yourself, too. Don't sell yourself short. So uh, it's awesome that. to be here. Appreciate that. That was Greg. Greg was second. And uh, Kyle, just a bit of a voice check. What does Kyle sound like? Oh, can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, no, we got you. Just, uh, just so the audience knows who's who. All right, before we jump in, guys, to, to some of the emails today, could you just tell me a little bit more about Dive Chat? What is it? What's it for? Why is it awesome? Yeah, in short, we're trying to get people off their phones into the real world. I really believe this true serendipity of technology and, and kind of what it can do for us going forward is get us ironically off of technology. And so our goal is to build something that's extremely simple and easy to use, but helps, again, bring people together in the real world. And so what that looks like is a group chat platform centered around events. So we help communities in the real world get together in person. We increase attendance for their events. We make chat extremely organized while retaining the fun. That's what it's all about is not kill killing like the culture of these communities that's 
absolutely essential in, again, embodying that fun aesthetic of these incredible active communities. Is it a chat platform or is it an event platform? Uh, I would say that we're a chat platform first, but our value proposition is events, which is always something tricky. And uh, again, that's where the design of Dive really comes in is how these two things play together, right? In-person communities do two things, really, which is interact online in the form of group chats and interact offline in the form of events. And so our goal is to create a platform that really effortlessly blends these two things together and becomes the one-stop shop for these communities. Amazing. I, I really love it. And I've shouted to you a bunch on that platform, uh, on Dive Chat itself. And, and just because it, it actually feels nice to message people. I generally hate texting people, but it really actually feels like this engaging experience, which is so weird um, because I thought text was done. I thought messaging had like, you know, how could it get better? But you guys have done a, a really interesting and amazing job of that. Uh, but look, again, we appreciate you guys' time. The design of your platform is amazing. So I've tried to get a lot of kind of design related questions today. And again, if you guys have questions, whether it be design or anything related with your startup, send them through to podcast at joeldetrafani.com. But before we get into the design ones, I've got one, you know, this podcast is new. So I figured we, we'd strict, you know, stick these questions more in the earliest stage of the startup journey. So this, uh, this first email is called taking the plunge. I'm 25, no kids, no mortgage, no debt just me and the rent to worry about. I've been working at startups since I jumped into the working world, hoping to pick up some tricks of the trade. Now I'm in a weird situation. I've validated my idea. It's commercially sound and pretty unique in our market. All signs point towards it being an opportunity worth chasing, but I haven't made any revenue yet and I'm still working my day job. I've always said I wouldn't quit my nine to five until my startup had some solid footing. Seemed like a common sense Seemed like a common sense thing to do to avoid the mistakes tons of people make by jumping ship too early. Thought I could manage both, but it's feeling more and more like I'm shortchanging both my job and the startup. Can I bounce this? Should I quit? Yours sincerely, Kaylee Kawoko. I've taken names out and just replaced with my favorite celebrities. <laughs> but yeah, look, the very beginning of the journey. What do you guys think? That's, that's a hard place to be in. Yeah, I would certainly say so, but it's also one of the most exciting because you can get so much progress in such a short period of time. It's extremely addicting because the feedback loops are so tight. I definitely uh, miss those early days at times. Uh, and again, especially with, again, no marriage, kids, things like that, like this is, from my perspective, the time to take risks. That's why I'm choosing to make this decision uh, myself is because, again, there is certainly inherent risk with any startup. Um, and then obviously the key question here is, you know, do you go all in? Um, I'm a personally a big fan of what I call burning the ships. Uh, you know, from when Cortez came over to South America, literally lighting the ships on fire, saying we are going to, you know, conquer or literally die um, trying. And I think startups, it's, it's pretty essential to do that. Obviously, risk tolerance is, you know, variable based on the person. So you have to be honest with yourself about what you're comfortable with. And again, what you're putting other people in your life through as well. So if you are married or you do have kids, these become massive variables. And so if you don't have that, it can be an opportune time to really, again, um, take some extreme risk and 
I would say more than anything, just kind of give yourself an opportunity, a time block that you think is comfortable to fully commit. That could be, you know, three months, six months. That could even be only a month if that's what you feel comfortable with. Um, maybe you even have the opportunity to go to the higher ups at your existing job and say, hey, I want to take, you know, a month off, two months off and fully pause that and commit to the startup. Um, and so really just try out what options are available to you. You know, think about these non-traditional perspectives. Um, again, if you're not as risk tolerant, but also I will say if you're trying to jump into to building an early stage startup, get used to risk. It's a, it's a key part of it. And I think being willing to take big bets, especially on yourself is going to be key, um, especially in your mid twenties. This is one of the best times to bet on yourself. And where again, that risk might not have as uh, significant of long-term effects again, um, as it might have later on in life. You guys are both 25 is my guess. And you have no kids and no mortgage. Did you guys write this? <laughs> I'm 24 actually. And, and I, I believe Greg is 23. So this is actually a pretty good question because it's it, it's a fairly similar situation to the kind of the position that you guys were in before you went into the startup world. Were, were you guys scared at all? What I think might be unique for both Greg and I is that we jumped straight from being university students into the full-time startup life. And so I think like not having the stability ever um, actually aided us. I did have jobs before dive, but it was always um, while still being a full-time student, which is a, a very different thing. And so we've also been able to keep kind of this like scrappy mindset um, and almost this college student mindset, allowing us to have a lifestyle that I think really fits with the earlier stage of the business. Um, so. Fortunately, now having, you know, raised capital and things like that, we've been able to, um, you know, add in that stability. And that's something that has been earned over, in this case, literally years um, to add in, again, some more of those like perks of a later stage company. Uh, but early on, I think we didn't fully acknowledge exactly what we were giving up, or at least I'll speak to this on my own front. Um, I just knew startups is what I wanted to do. I wanted to work on a business early stage and, and bring something of value into existence. But um, Greg has a different perspective here, I'm sure, um, or, or more to add. So I'll, I'll also pass over to him. What are you thinking, Greg? Yeah. Yeah. No, similar to what Kyle had mentioned, I also jumped in like full time after graduating from university. Um, and one of the things I'll, I'll say too is that I think although uh, I've also had jobs, you know, previous to dive, I've tried other startups too, as I know uh, Kyle has uh, as well. It just all comes down to a mindset of wanting to just bet on yourself while you're young, um, because this is the most opportune time to take risks. Oftentimes we talk about uh, how important stability might be later in life when, like the the question. Uh, the person who asked the question had mentioned they don't have a, uh, like a spouse and kids. Um, and that's a time where I think more stability might be um, a little bit, it would make a lot more sense to uh, have to be desirable. But uh, right now the mindset was just jump in head first post college um, and just give it everything you have. Also, while like the sense of hustle uh, is at its highest point, uh, because I definitely feel this like desire to make something for myself. And uh, I, I know everyone on our team feels the same. So yeah, I, I certainly think going in um, headfirst early, as long as you have like the privileges to do so um, is, is the right path. Yeah, I think that's kind of interesting that you guys went straight from college or, or university for my Australian audience directly directly into, into the startup world. So you don't really know 
what it was like. You, you didn't kind of have those golden handcuffs where you, you were sacrificing a, a big salary. You were poor then, and then you went straight into poorness. <laughs> like you just kind of continued with, with that kind of financial sacrifice the whole way through. But I guess like from my position, I think I was 25 when I quit my job. Um, I did have, I was married and I did have a mortgage. So it was like, I was terrified when I was in that position. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm staring at like the paper, and I'm just like, I have a good engineering job. Like, this makes pretty good money. But I was just thinking the whole time, like, fuck it. Like, what am I going to regret in ten years, or or, or, or when I'm dying? I, I just, I make so many decisions decisions based on, like, could I come back and do this? Like, what am I going to regret more? And staying in my job and like, you know, maybe I, I advance six months or maybe I advance a year and or maybe if I go down the startup world, maybe it's over in six months, but like what a crazy experience and I just get my job again <laughs> or another job. Like who gives a shit? I, I just, I guess I had this, this kind of confidence that I could get another nine to five, but I thought what if I never, if I don't do this now, will I ever do it? Will it ever be the right time? And, and it definitely felt uncomfortable for me at the time and, and, and like there was going to be sacrifice involved. Um, but yeah, like you guys, I think you make a good point as well, which is if you're going into a startup, it's, you know, you have to give it everything. That's not an easy task. Like risk is everywhere all the time. Are you going to be alive tomorrow? Who knows? Like the, the startup can die any moment, like always for the whole thing. So yeah, taking this plunge is just the first of so many plunges, but but it was a like a step that changed my life. Like after I... After I went down that kind of path, it made the world seem different to me. Like uh, after that, it was, it was, I started to think like everything's, you can do anything you want. Like it almost seemed like there were no rules after that. Like, oh, society said I had to do this job, but I didn't. I could go into this other thing. I've broken out of, you know, the rat race. I, like, I get to dictate life. I, I'm in charge here. And that was like this really empowering thing and it did come with risk, but it came with this like huge sense of purpose in, in, in where my place was in the world. Did you guys have any, I guess like any feelings around that when you went in and, and you, you gave up the chance to go into, into high paying jobs? Yeah, I think the point on like the accessibility of corporate, I think is a huge one. Like the whole point of these jobs is the stability and the fact that they'll be there. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of replaceability. Um, and when you're working on, and this is the thing is it really comes down to how much belief they have with their own idea, right? Is, is this an idea that comes once a year, once in 10 years, once in a hundred years, once in a thousand years. Um, and so, you know, so much of building a startup is about getting belief, but that first belief has to come in yourself, you know, before you convince early employees and then investors and then customers um, in this process, like you have to fully believe that this idea should be brought into existence and that you're the right person to do that. Um, I also really like Joel kind of the regret minimization framework you're talking about, which is you have to ask yourself, like, will you regret going to corporate for the next five years when you could have worked on this startup? Like certainly possible. I actually don't think there's a scenario or at least again, based off of, you know, the limited knowledge we have here in the question of them regretting doing a startup uh, for, you know, anywhere between three and 12 months and giving it a shot. Like you will learn so much. That is my favorite thing about building a startup is it's actually what I had wished college was, which is this like hands-on, everything's on fire environment 
project-based, you're just constantly learning and it never gets easier. Like no matter how far and how long you work on whatever you're building, it will stay equally hard just in different ways. And you get to work with the best people in the world, um, ideally those people on your team, but also in terms of advisors and investors, like getting to talk one-on-one in our case for the people that built, you know, Instagram, WhatsApp, Snapchat, these massive platforms is again, like these people would maybe teach a guest lecture at you know our university once a semester, and we get to you know spend some of time or time with these people you know once a month in some cases, um, and get to talk with them one on one. And like these are opportunities that are only available when you again like really take risk and put yourself out there. Also, the bigger, you know, of a jump that you take, this is something that becomes an advantage in terms of, you know, raising capital, both in terms of, again, your desire and your want for making this business a success. But also, again, if it was, you know, really easy decision um, that might speak less to other people, whereas, you know, you're building this story, ultimately, so much of building a startup is building the story behind it. Um, and, and taking these huge jumps is is just one key chapter and in, in usually an early chapter in, in what becomes this larger story. I'll also say, too, to add to that, Kyle makes a ton of great points. Um, the other thing that I feel like I've, I've learned in particular from starting early is that I wouldn't have gone in a corporate environment, is that you really have to learn how to make the most of minimal resources. I think oftentimes people will start in uh, like jobs or positions where if you are in the case of like a really large established company, you have this like literally limitless budget in terms of what you can spend to um, you know, make the business successful. Uh, and so in a startup, obviously you have limitations of, you know, whether it's funding or manpower or circumstances or anything else. Um, and I think during this time where you are more malleable as someone who's young, it is the right time to learn how to be scrappy and you can learn how to manage like multiple million dollar budgets later. Um, but this is the time for that. Uh, and I also think too, a lot of people who are uh, about the right fit or persona to go into a startup, typically when I've talked to these, these people or uh, you know, friends in circles, uh, oftentimes throughout life, they've been able to get away uh, with being able to BS a lot, like not studying for exams and then being able to make it by or writing a paper the night before and still getting a solid grade. I feel like I've fallen into that at times, um, but this is really like in startups, uh, and in these early experiences, it feels like the first time in my life where I haven't been able to just kind of BS my way through. You have yeah. to actually do the work. Um, and so... You'll get caught out. Exactly. You will get called out or your business will just fail. Uh, and so <laughs> you... And a lot of people know these stories, but uh, yeah, I think just learning, I think it's, you need to learn how to be scrappy first and then you can get into the, those more stable environments. I just think there's a lot of uh, you know, self-learning that can happen there. Yeah, I think we're all kind of like circling around the same kind of response here, which is that quit the job. Like there, there's so much, so much to be learned in the startup world. And if you're interested and Kaylee said that she's, she's validated her idea. It's commercially sound and unique in the market. It's like, what else do you want? I mean, I would have questions like how much have you really validated your idea if you haven't got revenue? But, you know, it could be a consumer play. You don't make revenue for a long time. So it, it could be a B2B. And if it's a B2B, then have you really validated it? Like, there's so much left to be questioned here. But if that's all true, and like, you, there's a business model that makes sense, and you know people are going to pay when it gets that scale, just fucking go for it. Like, worst case, just get another job. All right. Well, let's... uh. 
let's get to a clear recommendation here. What what are we saying? We're telling them to quit? Quit the nine to five? A hundred percent. I think if there is, you know, any real belief in the idea, it's it's worth pursuing. And I do think even if you're able to successfully move the business forward, you can't actually give it a shot without doing it full time. Um, again, this is coming from the asterisk of like privilege that assuming you have some savings, um, like you should be, you know, taking that plunge um, if it's, you know, financially reasonable for you to do so. Um, and again, that also might be making the sacrifice of like lowering what your lifestyle looks like. This isn't saying, you know, again, 12 months of your existing lifestyle, but 12 months of, of being able to stay afloat financially. Um, you know, if you're talking about like going into credit card debt and things, those are bigger decisions. And I, I would probably recommend having deeper validation of the idea and whatnot. Um, but if you're financially sound, I really don't think you'll regret it. Because the other thing that we didn't touch on is just how fun it is. Um, there is just so much chaos, but like finding your way through that and, and getting to work on that with others is something that, again, is, is something I wouldn't trade for the world. That's a great I, I certainly agree with, with Kyle's answer in terms of what this person should do. Uh, in addition, I'll also say too, one of the things that I have tried to think back on uh, in terms of maintaining this journey is thinking about what is truly the worst case scenario if this doesn't work out. And so uh, this can be different for many people and the element of privilege that Kyle mentioned is very real. Uh, and so for me, I do feel like this is just worst case scenario is you've got to just move back in at home, sleep at my parents' house, who I'm very thankful uh, have been so supportive. Uh, but when that's the worst case scenario and you feel like you're someone who um, is resilient, I, I think that's enough of an indication uh, that you should probably go all in. Yeah. All right. I love it. We uh, caught adjourned. This person is, uh, is putting their resignation in. So uh, we'll, we'll move on to the next email here. Uh, this one is called Bad Design or Bad Idea. My buddy and I launched a startup recently, just the two of us for now. I'm handling the business side of things and my partner is the resident tech wizard. We've been live for a little bit, but the traction is, well, it's more of a crawl. Uh, we're struggling to figure out why we're not gaining as much momentum as we'd like. Here's where things get challenging. When it comes to design and UX, we're both completely hopeless, as useful as a screen door on a submarine. <laughs> Our app's UX, in a word, is atrocious. We can sling code like nobody's business. I love whoever wrote this. We can sling code like it's nobody's business, but ask us to create a pleasant user interface and we might as well be trying to solve quantum physics. This guy has a lot of analogies. Um, <laughs> I hope that app has something to do with language. Um, so we're stuck at a crossroad. Is our lack of traction because our app looks like it was designed by a blind monkey? Or is our concept just not making the cut? How do you tell the difference? Any advice would be massively appreciated. Yours, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Well, um, all right. What advice do we have for analogy Dwayne here? Is it a bad idea or is it bad UX? How much does UX play into these kind of things? I'm going to go to you, Greg. Give, it, give us your initial thoughts because you are the mastermind. Carl likes to take a lot of credit, but I believe that Greg is the real designer here. No, I, I, I appreciate the question. I will say everything on product and design, I always view as a collaboration between all of us that are involved in product conversations. The amount that I've been able to improve at design through literally like tens and thousands of iterations and pieces of feedback from uh, Kyle and the rest of our team has been completely immeasurable. Um, and so our design is a reflection of everyone on our team, uh, even though I'm the one in Figma. 
Um, but as it pertains to the question of um, about is it a UX problem or an idea problem, uh, I do think that sometimes uh, UX can be an issue. Uh, oftentimes people will try to say that their idea isn't uh, having liftoff because it doesn't look nice enough or the UI isn't clean enough or it isn't up to par with other uh, large apps because consumers' expectations around design is really high these days. Um, it's also really high around stability and performance. Uh, I would say you need to first make sure that the app actually works, which means like no crashes, no unexpected freezes, uh, things like that, if this is an app, which I think was the question. Um, as it pertains to is the UX bad or is the idea bad, I think you need to give the idea its best shot through just dumb, simple UX first to know if that's the case. Um, and so for this person, whatever they are trying, whichever actions they want users to accomplish on their product or whatever their success scenarios in, uh, are for the product, uh, I think they just need to simplify the UX down to distilling it down to its absolute simplest components. First, eliminate the bloat. Don't worry about UI quite yet um, and just make the funnel super simple uh, as much as they can. And then after that, I think it might be time to assess the idea. But I think each idea um, deserves a shot at just some like dumb, simple UX first. Some dumb, simple UX. All right, Kyle, what are you thinking? Do these guys have a yeah, bad idea? Yeah, I mean, I think... <laughs> we actually, obviously without specifics on the concept, it's, it really depends on the space a lot. I actually don't even think you should build a product until you have pretty significant validation. Like you should be able to have traction pre-product ideally. Um, we actually have the opposite problem of this as well, where again, our, our development has been one of our bottlenecks from, from day one, from our alpha uh, until, yeah, <laughs> literally like a thousand versions later, it was is when we first started to really figure out performance. Whereas our design was actually, uh, you know, shout out Greg for this and, and, you know, our early design team, just incredible work from day one. One of our challenges always was getting the product to actually match designs. Like we would use uh, these like PowerPoint sales decks basically in calls with communities and they would look gorgeous. And then you download the app and you're like, that's not the same app. Like that is not the same platform. Uh, and so for so long, it was just again about um, development bandwidth and get again, the high table stakes that Greg mentioned is huge depending on your space. So it really depends if you're trying to disrupt incumbents um, or if you're trying to bring something like truly novel and new to the market. So if you're trying to disrupt incumbents, it's going to matter a lot more to match parity and, and hit table stakes. Whereas again, if you're bringing something truly new, like what sort of like with Be Real, I, I kind of use this as an example here in our space and consumer social, where they weren't really directly competing with something like Instagram, right? Like they're not trying to steal usage. You would use Be Real on top of Instagram, right? Like Instagram becomes your, um, you know, kind of personal lookbook and way that you're going to DM and your actual social graph and social network. Be Real is really this like kind of like fun, like almost gamified experience on top of that. And again, not a replacement. And so um, if you're trying to replace something, yeah, it, it can become a really dangerous, dangerous game trying to fight to, again, match a feature set of a company that probably has literally a thousand X the resources you do. Um, 
And so what I would really say is try to validate without the product itself whatsoever as much as you possibly can. Even if you have a product, might it might not be selling that product, but instead go out and kind of do pre-sales, go do pre-orders and just try to identify how much demand there is um, without having the product be a variable whatsoever. I spent over a year and a half on Dive before we launched um, our alpha product while I was still a student, just validating the idea before I even brought on a co-founder um, or anyone else on the team. It was just literally hundreds of user interviews um, with potential community leaders and just validating that there was indeed a problem in this space. And so that would be the other thing is, is focus less on, on how much of is, how much is our product potentially wrong, but are you, are you solving the right problem, right? That's what it always comes down to is, is focusing on how big of a problem, how severe of a problem it is. Um, and are you having to convince someone that that problem exists or is this a problem they've already identified for themselves and they're actively looking for a solution for? Yeah, I think I think you both make a lot of really good points there. Uh, maybe just to, to to hone in on 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 one thing you said, Carl, which is that what's the space? Are you trying? Is this brand new? And and it's like new users will come to this on top of everything they're using, or is it you know are you copying someone that's already doing something? And if you're just if you're making a chat app to directly compete with Instagram or or, or any kind of chat app, Snapchat or whatever, like. That's a good idea, like fundamentally, because that's why those businesses exist. So like, you know, you've got a good idea and UX does become extremely important. But but I think I would actually say that they've just, they've got a bad idea. Like I can't imagine a world where they actually don't have a good, where they don't have a bad idea. Like in, in my mind, what you're saying is correct, Kyle, which is that validate the idea. If you can validate it, if you have a strong enough value prop, people will overcome pretty shit UX. Like you can have, there are bad, there are bad products out there. I'll say WhatsApp's one of the worst design platforms that like out there. And I use it every day all the time because the value prop is so strong. Like the, the UX and design of that platform is, is so average, but you know, the, they've got a really fundamentally good product there. And so they can kind of deal with that. But I, I just think, if you have a really strong idea and as long as your UX isn't like giving the wrong idea about what you do or if it's not so incredibly bad, like you need to have a minimum UX where, you know, people can at least understand your platform and it's not fundamentally broken where they can actually do the process. Like they can submit payment or they can buy the thing or they can message the person. If you can do that, I, I just think you've got a bad idea. And that's okay. Like bad ideas can can be improved. You can pivot the idea and you can go from there and 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 UX should should be part of the way you think about it. And you should I think you should reach a some kind of minimum standard. But I actually think good UX can mask shitty products. Cause I think you can have really good UX, which can actually falsify and amplify attraction in a way that's not authentic. So I, I think sometimes, especially in the early days, you can invest too heavily in those things. And, and it can look really nice and it can excite people in a big way and people want to use it, but, th- but they don't come back because it actually isn't genuine and it can almost lead you down the wrong path. So, so I think it really comes down to just validation of the idea more than anything else. And, and that can be done with spreadsheets and type forms and posters with phone numbers attached to them. I, I certainly agree with that. I'll also add to, um, I, I recently had someone that was pitching me an idea related to like doing personal shopping related to AI. 
Um, and you can like upload, I think it was like a picture of your closet maybe, and it'll make suggestions for you using AI. Um, and obviously it's a hot space and everyone wants to you know, dip their toes in it somehow. Um, but they're, what they originally were going to do was actually just build out the whole app with the AI integration and everything else and then see if it works versus the advice that I gave was just like do it yourself, whatever you can uh, emulate on like a human level, whatever like technicalities you can emulate on a human level, you should do to validate it. So if this means in the case of this idea, taking a picture of your, like somebody, the customer takes a picture of their closet, texts it to you, the founder, and you make the suggestions to them yourself, that is so much more preferred than like building all this crap out that might not be a good idea uh, in the first place. So totally agree. And I think another good framework to think about is what technical aspects you can just do manually yourself to validate that idea. Um, I think this goes back to what Kyle was saying a lot of the times of some of the things that he did in the early days of Dive of actually uh, like surveying people, going out, talking to potential customers, um, and really like hearing out those pain points. Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll, I'll add to that too. I really like that point, Greg. In terms of again, how much can you manually do? I know Stitch Fix did this as well in the early days of their business, which is actually similar to the AI closet idea, ironically. Where again, they just manually did everything, and then you scale that you automate and productize what you're doing manually. So even right now, things we're doing at Dive are about kind of simplifying what we were effectively doing in B2B style marketing into B2C style marketing by productizing that exact flow. But if we hadn't started with the B2B style marketing, talking one-on-one -on -one manually to community leaders, realizing like what are the aha moments? What are the points where their face lights up? We would just be candidly guessing um, and and again so really start with that more manual brute force approach and then the other thing I really think is key with this specific question is what is traction so in terms of like maybe your product isn't going massively viral but let's say you have like literally 10 people but they come back every single day like you do nothing you don't improve the product but they come back every single day and they start using it for hours right like maybe on paper like you want growth right but like you have something really special for this small market so i think another mistake that can be made is looking at only a single metric and you can end up throwing away that something that is really valuable so if it's truly no traction across the board no growth no engagement and no retention of course there's nothing there but i think a mistake we made early on was not recognizing again we we like just weren't looking at the you know, breadth of things we can look at and we realized actually looking back now on the alpha of the products, uh, our like retention was actually quite good in some of these early communities because again, the core mechanics and kind of physics of the platform were great. There was all these performance issues and things hurting it, but the core of like group chats themselves um, and, and the event kind of integration that we were offering was really powerful. And I'm glad that we were able to like find that glimpse of hope at what seemed like a very dire time with something like 1% D30 retention, I think, with the first version of the product. Um, but recognizing, you know, of this 1% of this, these initial users we had brought on, like they are sticking around, okay, why? And then doubling down and double clicking on that. So um, finding the most successful thing in a mostly uh, failure of a product iteration, I think is one of the most key things. And then doubling down on that, like no matter how bad an idea is, there's hopefully probably something something somewhere in there that uh, has some value to gain and uh, one of the best things you can do and that's you know 
why it's all about just getting started is once you have an iteration, you have something to build on. You have to be willing to cut a lot of that, cut 99% of the fat, but find the 1% and then cut away the other 99 and, and triple down on that, which is actually how you brought up WhatsApp, Joel. That's how that was you know, founded. Uh, was, again, it wasn't a messaging app by itself originally. It was kind of statuses. And then they recognized that people were using these statuses to send messages to one another and kind of over time iterated and iterated and built out what became obviously one of the most successful or the most successful messaging app um you know or yeah one of the most successful messaging apps in the world man that's really cool i did not know that about whatsapp but i also just i love that idea that be careful with how you measure traction like you're right it's, it's not just about one metric and, and and you know to to Dwayne who wrote the who wrote the question in like look into that and make sure you actually really understand the value prop and the most effective ways to use it and look how people are using your platform even in ways you wouldn't expect I remember in a much earlier iteration of my platform, you know, the whole idea at that time was just connect people to have a video call. But we we never measured how much people were sending messages to one another. So we were like, this launch was a fail. We didn't even, you know, we didn't even compare with what was happening like in person. So like, what's the point of using this to scale? And then we looked at what was happening just in the chat where people were sending texts back and forth on our platform and it had just exploded. And we were like, what is happening? And, and it was like a thousand percent increase on who was engaging in person. And, and we just, we'd never known what to look for. So yeah, I, I think there's some pretty good points here for Dwayne, which is number one, be careful that you're measuring what the traction is and you're measuring the right traction. But number two, you probably have a bad idea and, and, and cut and pivot and change until you actually get something that makes sense and then build it and then get Greg to come and do your UI for you and your UX for you. But, but until then, just, just hit, hit the minimum standard and the minimum standard is the, the barrier to entry is pretty damn low. People will overcome some pretty tough hurdles. That, that's my kind of feel. What, what do you guys think? What, what are you telling them? Is it bad design or is it a bad idea? Overall, if I'm picking based on the minimal information again here, I'd probably go bad idea. Um, and the other thing is ideas aren't very valuable. Like if it's not a phenomenal idea, then it's probably a bad idea. Again, you can yeah. hopefully find some some scraps of genius uh, no matter what um, the idea is. And again, it's really just taking a first first of many shots at bat and and then again being willing to mercilessly iterate we're on we've literally built 1500 versions of the product now at dive uh, that's not an exaggeration um and we're going to build another 1500 from here and continue to improve it uh but again like yeah just you have to be brutally brutally honest with yourself i think there needs to be um naturally entrepreneurs are optimists that's why they're taking this risk and wanting to bring something into the world but from a product perspective bringing pessimism into conversations is so critical because it's going to be especially early on in the life cycle of a feature uh sarah tavell has a really great piece on again the hype cycle of features internally at companies like everyone's always going to get excited about a new idea um no matter what um and that's a good thing. That's why these features, you know, come to existence. But you need to be able to taper that back and look realistically about how does this, you know, fit into the overall platform. Um, so in this case, it's similar. Like you're starting a new business. That's going to be exciting inherently. Um, and be willing to pivot and be willing to, again, scrap 99% if that's what it takes, but also 100% be willing to admit that your idea isn't right. And uh, the goal should be to invalidate, not validate your idea. Like try to find it. Uh, try to prove that it doesn't work. Don't try to prove that it works. Love it. Yeah, I, I would also give, yeah, I would also give similar advice to uh, to Dwayne about this one. Um, 
Given the limited information, I would say, number one, you just got to give it a fair shot first in terms of uh, you have to achieve the table stakes that are core to your value proposition. Um, so like as an example, in the case of Dive, if you couldn't, like if you try to send a message and it just doesn't send, um, then it's not necessarily that the idea is bad. It is just the app doesn't work. Um, so as long as you have those table stakes established, I think, um, then you can be pretty um, secure in the fact that it's probably a bad idea. But again, even going back to the first question, I do commend Dwayne for taking the leap um, into actually doing the startup because that's the advice I would have recommended originally. Um, but it is important to, like Kyle said, uh, look for ways to invalidate that idea as well. Great. So A plus for the analogies because I could barely get reading through that, that post and keep the analogies coming. Um, and this version of your idea is bad. So uh, go back to the drawing board, pivot, iterate, and, uh, and go again. Because, you know, 1,500 versions is a lot. And, and, and these guys are still going. So we've got time for one more question. Uh, so we'll jump in. Uh, title of this question is UX designer turned UX destroyer. Pretty ominous. <laughs> um, I'm a startup founder slash designer. And lately, I've been making some just plain bad UX decisions one after another and it's just becoming cringe. I used to trust my gut and make sound choices, but now it's like I've forgotten how to design. I've taken my users on a wild ride, but not the fun kind. I won't lie, my confidence has taken a real beating. Feels like I'm stumbling in the dark. Thanks for listening. Any guidance would be awesome. Love from Ryan Gosling. And I do love Ryan Gosling. All right, let's jump into this one. Confidence in design. That is a tough one. Yeah, I'm happy to take this one first. Um, number one, I've, I've been there plenty of times, as, as Ryan mentioned, in terms of, I think uh, with anyone in business or in life too, there's moments where you sort of question your abilities at something, uh, even if it's something that you would regard as your best skill or something that you do every day. Um, so it's totally okay to feel this way and there is ways out of this. Um, I think the primary way, like for instance, recently, uh, I was working on a flow inside of the app and there was some insecurity related to is this the right path to go? Uh, is this the right like steps to put this flow into? Um, and I think similarly to if you were going to try to improve something in life and you're uh, reflecting or you're just taking time for yourself, the best thing that you can do to create a greater sense of security is to just talk to your users and talk to real people. Um, this is the only way that we in the entire company, I feel like, have able to develop a sense of clarity uh, around the decisions that we're making. Um, and so talking to users is so incredibly crucial. Um, I think you also, or Ryan mentioned at the beginning, uh, the question was around how they trusted their intuition originally uh, to a higher degree, and now they're beginning to question that. Um, I think that can sometimes, you can sometimes lean on intuition some early, uh, but once you have a certain base of users, I don't know what the, the size of the business is right now, uh, but once you have a certain, you feel like you have a foothold in something, um, you can actually begin to garner more and more insights from talking to real customers more frequently. Um, and so, yeah, I would just say the number one thing is just lose the ego and like just do the hard thing of going up to strangers and talking to them and hearing about their pain points. Um, there's a lot of advice that we could give related to actually how to talk to, to customers or current users, but uh, I think what we've found in the company, and I at least feel like I found myself, is that talking to users and real people is the best way to, to get out of these slumps. What, like, just jump into that. What do you talk to them about? Like, it, it's obviously not 
uh, I feel bad about my design decisions. Like if you're constantly going there and you build this into your systems, what do those conversations look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, the conversations sort of differ depending on what you'd be looking at. In the case of uh, like an early part or even before you have a product, uh, sometimes it's really, it's just really important to just talk to people about the pain they're experiencing in their life and not talking about your idea at all. So in the case of um, like you have a new business idea, you would ask someone, or let's say you have like an audio, you have an idea for an audiobook app, you might ask someone like, do they read books first or do they listen to books first is the beginnings of the question um, and continue to uh, shrink lower and lower into what eventually becomes talking to them about your startup idea. Um, just trying to have conversations that really go towards pain points and also minimize the bias that would be given. Uh, for instance, for us, like one of the um, things that we've learned really commonly is that people are pretty adverse to actually giving critical feedback if they know that it's your idea. Um, and so this is something that I know Kyle loves to say uh, a bunch too, or, or uh, like something useful that we've used in user interviews, but we'll show dive to, uh, you know, random people and just say that this is like our competitor's app and to roast it. And all of a sudden, once you say that it's the app of your competitor, they become a lot more honest and critical with their feedback. Uh, and so trying to eliminate biases, both in a positive or negative direction is one of the goals. And this can be done by either uh, well, reminder too, saying your app is a competitor's app might provide biases in a different direction, so that's something to be mindful of. Um, but any ways that you can get a diversity of responses is always key, whether that's in the method that I just mentioned or not talking about your idea earlier on in conversations. Um, but on the whole, it sort of depends on what you're looking for. Um, and also, one other thing I'll say too, related to if you're showing uh, customers or strangers uh, something that's currently implemented in a design or in your product itself um, is to consult or at least reflect on the times where you're intervening as they're going through a flow. Um, this is some ad advice that I don't actually remember where this comes from, but I heard this advice recently of if you're doing a user interview and they're going through uh, a flow inside of your app and you feel like an urge to interject and explain something, to write that down and to view that as a place for improvement uh, as well because it is just inherently something that you might be feeling more insecure about given that flow. So um, that's a lot of uh, various advice, but uh, on the whole, that's sort of how these conversations tend to go for us. I think kind of user interviews is, that should be a whole episode. We, we should, maybe we'll come back and, and, uh, and we'll do an episode together about that because it sounds like you guys are, are nailing that right now. But, but I guess, how do you guys differentiate between when you're doing these user interviews how do you differentiate between someone who just says something like you hear a lot of the time, like talk to your users, but then you also hear conflicting information that users don't know what they want. And, and, and we need to be the ones to, to help them understand that. Like people pay with their actions. People pay with their credit cards. Um, like their, their advice is often pretty misaligned with how they actually act in the platform. Yeah, so also what Greg just quoted at the end there in terms of when you went and urged to explain something is from Josh Elman, um, just one of the absolute goats in this space. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been very fun getting to talk to him about what we're doing on Dive. And I remember he gave that advice and then later I was reading one of his articles um, on onboarding specifically. And so when you're like first having someone onboard to a product, like you 
literally watch them do it and realize like you want to verbally explain something when they pause whatever you're trying to verbally say is something that should be communicated via the product itself in onboarding and so again major shout out to josh elman um there and then yeah to your point here joel it actually i think is a key piece of all of this which is again it comes back to uh, something i mentioned earlier which is again identifying the right problem like so much of ux is actually about um you know what problem are you trying to solve it's very very different from ui and i'll also preface all of this with everything i say is with an asterisk like greg is the absolute man on both ui and ux design and is truly like in my opinion, one of the best designers in the world. Um, and it's crazy because he's at the beginning of his career, but um, already just truly so, so gifted at what he does. But one of the things that Greg led the charge on was implementing with every product spec that we pass off on design, it actually starts with problems first. Before there's any designs or there's any solutions mentioned, we first highlight the various problems that a user is facing. And I think that framework is just so key because everything related to the designs themselves, both UI and UX should always come back to what are we actually trying to achieve here, right? Like with, you know, onboarding or with any core flow in an app, like it's trying to achieve a goal. And we recently were just reworking on so much of our onboarding and we went back and forth with massive swings and those swings actually weren't from the designs themselves changing, but the problems changing. Was it, we're trying to get users as quickly as possible through onboarding to, you know, hit an aha moment, um, later on in the product life cycle or and and kind of what we ended up doing in in this iteration of onboarding is rather again like taking a longer approach to onboarding because we realized we wanted to really like get user education um you know incorporated into that experience and so again i think so much of ux specifically is about identifying the right problems and then another amazing piece of uh greg advice that i, I know he gives to a lot of people is is simply designing every single day uh this is something he tells to a lot of young designers but maybe this also means if you really don't feel confident with you know ux and ui you shouldn't be taking stabs at you know the designs of your actual product and maybe it should be you know taking on some design challenges outside of the core competency of your business and um you know if it is you know your business design this might be something you've like thought about for potentially months if not years and you can just get really in your head and so taking a break uh and then going to talk to users and customers and then simultaneously practicing design with things that you're less emotionally attached to because i think that's something we can often struggle with as well is you know maybe you have a design that you think is incredible maybe it took you a really long time and you feel so bought into um um, you know, its existence, but ultimately that's a sunk cost. I think something we've become immensely comfortable with over the years is is scrapping uh, designs, scrapping codes, scrapping what we consider to be incredible ideas, marketing campaigns, whatever it might be, um, in favor of just doing what works. This, this ties back to, you know, what Greg said earlier about just dropping the ego. And so, um, and then, yeah, one final piece of advice is, is creating multiple versions. This is something I love that Greg does is whenever we're really coming at something new in the company, and we're working on the kind of a major change within the product is very rarely will a sole design be presented, but rather uh, several different iterations. And that's also something you can bring into user interviews. You were asking earlier, Joel, like, what do you even talk about? Um, similarly, if you show someone something and you say like, do you like this? Their answer is going to be like, yes, because it's really mean to say yeah. no. Whereas if you give them options, you start doing A-B testing, A-B-C testing. Now you're going to get an honest answer. Like maybe none of your solutions are right, but you're at least starting to move in the right direction of which one's a favorite. It's just a lot more uh, useful in terms of the information you're collecting. Look, there is, there is so much good advice here. I, uh, I feel like we've, we've kind of, you know, we've half given Ryan the answer he needed. So I think if we break this question down, it's, 
how do you stop making bad decisions? And the other one is like, how do you get past that confidence hole? And and we might do another episode on, on confidence and imposter syndrome because, you know, the, there's some shit that, I, that I'm sure you guys but as well, but definitely me, I felt imposter syndrome a bunch of times and my confidence has been rocked and my intuition has been rocked. But it's, it, And there's so many ways to deal with that. So, so we'll cover that somewhere else because otherwise we're going to be here for, for 10 hours. But as, as far as, as, far as uh, you know, making better decisions, it's, it's so clear and, and I completely agree. It's like, speak to your users. Have a, have a conversation and, and, and the, you know, there's, there's an art to that and, and it takes a while to get good at. You guys have done 1,500 iterations and I'm sure you've done like hundreds or thousands of user conversations that go along with that as well to make sure you're actually shaping those iterations in the right way. And speaking to users, it seems so easy, but it's hard to keep doing it. It's so easy to be like, I'm pretty sure Greg will just knock this one out of the park. Fuck it. Who cares about speaking to someone else? But it's it's that discipline there that I think is so key. So yeah, I, I agree. Ryan, speak to your users and uh, and, and use that as your guidance to, to find the problems you should really be building for. And on that same note, finding the right way to talk to users is key. I think it's just such a common piece of advice that investors and advisors give to founders and early teams is like talk to your users. It's a lot harder said than done, depending on your market, especially, uh, you know, especially if you're a B2B business, again, getting into those calls is effectively a sales call. Um, and again, like these are busy people, their time is valuable. And so again, it's easier said than done, but it is worth the grind uh, to like find that feedback. In our case as well, we've actually built out some pretty unique feedback flows. For one, we've become extremely responsive on social media. Like if you message any of our like company accounts will get back to people very quickly uh when they're providing let's test that guys let's find dive <laughs> chat on all the social parts and see how fast you'll get a response greg and carl what are you committing to i would say like minimum 20 or maximum 24 hours uh, um, 24 typically hours. and then the real unique flow is that you can actually message us within the app so there's a what we call the dm the ceo flow so it does send my actual personal phone a message uh and if you do that within the app you're gonna probably on average get a message in under 10 minutes back uh if it's within like any reasonable awake hours uh obviously this is not a scalable solution uh so i should put the asterisk that um you know we're actually pulling this out of the app shortly because Let's again docs kyle <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's actually a fact though he does i i message him on that function and he gets back to me all the time and i was like i was trying to get him as well i signed up with the, like not with my name or anything like that just to mess with him and he got right back to me yeah my favorite are the the drunk texts at 3 a.m and then i'll respond at 3 15 a.m and they really get thrown by that so not drunk just just grinding honestly it's a slightly different vibe on the saturday evening sometimes um Awesome, guys. Well, uh, yeah, amazing advice there. I, I think that really puts us in a good position. But uh, the last segment of the show is plugs. So, um, guys, what's going on? What, uh, what do you want to plug? We've talked about Dive Chat a lot, but where can people download it? What else, what else are you plugging? Any you know, music you're liking? Any social media you want them to follow? What do you want to plug? Anything in the world? Oh, anything. Uh, no, I'm trying to think of a really <laughs> silly answer. Uh, <laughs> 
no, honestly, yeah, downloading the app, downloading Dive Chat, and being merciless with feedback. This is something that, again, comes down to our absolute core principles at Dive Chat. When we go to real world communities and pitch them in person, we always say, like, genuinely, don't tell us what you like. Like, roast us. Be as mean as possible. Heck, even if you want to roast us personally, you don't like our voice right now, tell us. We love feedback. We're a feedback-driven company. Uh, but download the app. Try out Dive Chat. Try it out with one of your communities. Again, we're all about getting people off their phones into the real world and starting a movement around that kind of, again, just like fostering meaningful real world relationships via community and events. Um, but besides that, I don't have anything else to plug. I, I don't use traditional social media very much. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's just at Kyle Brass from my name. Uh, but I'm off that platform more and more by the day, it seems like. And, and with that, I'll pass over to Greg for anything he wants to plug. Obviously, we got to plug Dive, download it like Kyle said, and more importantly, make events on Dive. Our core mission is to just get people to spend more time in the real world. Um, our company uh, slogan is actually make moments happen. I don't know if we even mentioned that quite yet, but I love the slogan and I love the mission that uh, our entire business is embodying. Um, and so really not only download Dive, but please make events and do stuff with your friends in the real world. Um, the other thing that I'll say too is I love just contributing to the design community and helping younger designers as best I can. Um, so anyone is more than welcome to communicate with me, send over designs that I'm happy to give feedback. Feel free to do that. I'm on every social media at Greg Serafian. Uh, or you can email me. It might be easier to type because my last name is sometimes <laughs> tough to, to figure out. Uh, if you want to email me at Greg, it's G-R-E-G at dive.chat. Uh, feel free to shoot over designs. I'm always happy to, to help and contribute and provide more advice to more, I guess, celebrity names or, or otherwise. <laughs> and then a massive shout out to Joel and Vigo as well, of course. Like, genuinely, like, Joel in person is just one of my favorite people. Like, Greg and I will go to networking events and there'll be hundreds of people there, but like, our face lights up just so much bigger when we see Joel. Like, the energy is incredible. The accent is deadly and just straight up unfair. Uh, and so, just again, feel so blessed for that friendship. And yeah, so a major shout out to genuinely everything they're doing uh, at Vigo as well. Like, I love you know, enabling students to become connected to the other students at their university and access the various resources they have available to them. So just thankful that, again, it's, it's a great business and a great person. So show him some love. Um, if you, I mean, man, if you aren't, you're just silly. I appreciate that. I mean, I sent you that script, but I didn't expect you to read it so well, but man, that's, a, that's so, that's so kind of you, but, but honestly, uh, Thank you guys. This was this was super fun. I'm gonna put all of your kind of, everything you just said. You know your emails and your Twitter handles, etc. Uh, we'll put them in the show notes as well, so everyone can kind of connect and uh, and to download uh, Dive Chat straight from there. And uh, I've got some plugs too. Subscribe and give this podcast five stars. So any kind of platform, subscribe. Send this to your friends. Get out your mum's phone, your brother's phone, your friend's phone, and then just subscribe and download all the episodes of this on there. So we we really appreciate uh, you guys. Uh, listening in today and thank you so much to everyone who wrote in I kind of put this call out pretty last minute so I was I was really fortunate to everyone who kind of sent me some messages and gave me some challenges for us to read out today and listeners if you have problems uh, if there's anything you want us to cover please send them through email them to podcast at joeldietrapani.com that will be in the show notes as I said um, it is a mouthful so we're going to wrap this one up. Kyle and Greg, thank you for arguing with me, for laughing with me today. Um, I really think the audience is going to take a lot away from this one. This has been another episode of Do As I Say, Not As I Did podcast. Uh, we'll see you next week. See yous.